Thank you, Amy. I am so jealous of young people who can read seven-point font without glasses, as Amy just did. That's awesome. So anyway, I turned 40 and my eyesight left. That was pretty much it. So how you guys doing? All right, good to see you all again. I'm uh, calmer now, and I think I have my stuff together. Maybe, we'll see. So we are uh, in our last week of this series titled God's Faithfulness, which we're taking a break from our verse-by-verse study of the book of Romans uh, to kind of do a flyover of what the Old Testament story is. And we're looking at it through the lens of his faithfulness because essentially that's really what what the story of God is, is his faithfulness to his people, uh, to us. But we're looking at it through the lens of his faithfulness to his people in the Old Testament. So we've talked about how he's faithful in his promise and we looked at the life of Abram or Abraham during that time. Sean Myers got us started with that. Uh, Then we kind of looked at some of the times surrounding the Exodus and we talked about how God is faithful in the formation of his people as well. And then Sean Myers took us through in the third week how uh, God is faithful even during the rebellion um, of his people. And Sean did a great job of covering a thousand uh, uh, years of history in about 42 minutes. And then last week we looked at uh, the result of that rebellion, which was the exile in Babylon and how God is even faithful in the midst of the exile. And we looked at uh, primarily at Ezra, uh, excuse me, uh, um, Ezekiel chapter 36 for that. And now we get to look at how God is faithful even in the return from exile. And, and we're going to be primarily in uh, one of two books, uh, one of the books that um, Amy just read from, which is Nehemiah, but will also be in Ezra. Ezra Nehemiah describes what happens and how the Jews are able to return from exile. In antiquity, this was counted as one book and it was called Ezra Nehemiah with a hyphen in, in between. We've split it since into uh, two different books, but we're going to be in both of those uh, books today. Last week I gave sort of a, a brief outline of the chronology, the history uh, of, of uh, the nation of Israel as they were headed towards uh, exile. And many people said that was tremendously helpful. And so in order to set up today's message about the return, I'm going I'm to do a little bit of that again. I'm not going to start as early as creation, but I'm going to go a little bit deeper into it because it helps us to understand the timeline of these things that are happening. In the year 922 BC, the nation of Israel uh, split and became actually two kingdoms. Some people inside the government got sideways with each other and they ended up splitting. Ten tribes uh, formed what was known as the Northern Kingdom. They retained the name Israel. And then two tribes, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, became the Southern Kingdom and they were known as Judah and their capital remained in Jerusalem with Solomon's temple. Uh, 200 years later in 722, uh, the Assyrian army, which was then the, the powerhouse of the, of the world at the time, uh, came in from the north and they sacked Israel. They, they destroyed Israel and they scattered all of the uh, people, all the Jews in Israel, the northern kingdom. Just, just, they just sort of scattered them all over the place and got them to intermarry and were doing the best they could to dilute their ethnicity. Uh, Judah remained intact for... <clears throat> approximately 180 more years, but then uh, the new superpower in the world, Babylon, with their king and leader, uh, warrior king and leader Nebuchadnezzar, uh, also they came in from the north and they attacked uh, Judah and specifically Jerusalem in the year 605. Then they did it again in 597 and then they did it one more time, kind of finishing off the job in 586 as well. And Nebuchadnezzar's policy with conquered people was a little bit different than the Assyrians. Instead of scattering people, he left some of the Jews in Jerusalem 
to sort of build on what was left, which was essentially nothing. But he also carried back 70,000 Jews to Babylon and had them set up uh, in community there. He kept the Jews intact, in other words. Uh, he didn't scatter them, but nevertheless, they were a conquered people, humiliated and mocked and defeated, and they were taken back to Babylon where they did the best they could for the next 70 years to make uh, a life there. Uh, during this time, we have three prophets primarily emerge as the voices during that time. You had Jeremiah who was in Jerusalem, in Judah, both before uh, the attacks and during the attacks. And we have his book, Jeremiah, which is a magnificent uh, book of prophecy. Uh, he also wrote a book called Lamentations, which is his description and his grieving as, as Jerusalem and the temple are being uh, destroyed. Uh, we also have Ezekiel, who we looked at last week. He was God's voice to the exiles while they were in exile. So his ministry started in about um, uh, 592 BC, about five years after he was taken into captivity and taken to Babylon. Uh, God called him into ministry and he began to preach God's word to the exiles who were there. And he was a colorful guy, but always preached the truth, even when it was hard and challenging uh, for the people to hear it, as we heard last week out of chapter 36. And, and then there was the other guy, uh, I think it was two summers ago, we went through the first six chapters of the book of Daniel, the, the historical narrative of Daniel's life. Uh, Daniel was also a prophet during the exile, but he had a unique position inside the government of Babylon. As a young Jewish boy, he demonstrated that he was a, a really sharp young guy, and Nebuchadnezzar invited him, called him to become a part of his cabinet. And over the years, uh, Daniel served faithfully Faithfully, the government of Babylon while, while still retaining his faith and his uh, allegiance and alliance with Yahweh, uh, the God of Israel. And, and the, the, if you've never read uh, Daniel, it's a, it's, a, it's a magnificent book and I would highly encourage you to do that. Uh, we know from extra biblical history, so historical annals, as well as from Daniel chapter 5 then, that in October of 539, Cyrus the Persian and Darius, Darius the Mede uh, formed an alliance, it became known for a while as the Medo-Persian Empire and eventually it just became the Persian uh, Empire, but they formed an alliance and decided that they were going to figure out how to attack and subdue Babylon. Babylon was previously thought of as a, as a city that was impenetrable, unconquerable. It had these magnificent 70-foot walls. Um, it, 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 was just, it was considered to be absolutely unbeatable. Uh, yet Cyrus and Darius and their Corps of Engineers figured out how to do it, and they did it really with minimal loss of life. It was, there was hardly a shot fired, if you want to use that kind of language, uh, in their conquering of the city and, and the nation of Babylon. And so they took over in 539, and so in the Medo-Persian rule, uh, they, they're, the way they treated conquered people was a little bit different. Um, it was more charitable to the Jews and to the other conquered people, uh, especially as compared to the, the policies of Assyria and Babylon. Cyrus, who was really the conquering king, the Persian, he had a policy of toleration, is how the, uh, the historians describe it, a policy of toleration which allowed then, in fact, it not only allowed, but he decreed that it would be so, uh, to, to, he allowed the Jews, uh, whoever wanted to, to begin to return to what is known as the province beyond the river. Any of those conquered lands that were uh, 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 about six, 700 miles west of Babylon that were along the, the mid-Mediterranean there, uh, the, all of that land there, including Israel, and Judah uh, was just known as the province beyond the river. And, and so he said to the Jews, you can return to the province beyond the river. And in their case specifically, it would be Judah and Jerusalem. And, and you can go back there and you can rebuild your, your uh, temple.
temple. We're going to read about that in just a minute in Ezra chapter uh, 1. Uh, Interestingly, less than half of the Jews who were in Babylon took him up on the offer and went. Um, they, they, the, the historians record that about, and the Bible records, that about 42,000 uh, Jews went back. Plus some non-Jews went with them, as well as um, the, the, the Bible chronicles all of the different animals that they took back with them too. If you can just imagine, there's 42,000 people, uh, essentially, maybe a few more, with all of these animals that were making this 700-mile trek back to Jerusalem, including the, the, the highest number of any kind of animal were, was the donkey. They had more than 7,000. Do- Could you imagine walking 700 miles with 7,000 donkeys? That must have been... I am fascinated by biblical donkeys. Have you guys noticed that over the last couple of weeks? I really like it when there's a donkey involved in a, in a Bible story. By the way, this is, I'm just way off track here, but I have to say this. I've been reading a lot lately. I don't know if this is true. I think it is. But people claim that the only domestic animal not mentioned in the Bible is the cat. So all of you cat owners, you have some things to think about and we'll be praying for you. So uh, anyway, so get a donkey, okay? So uh, anyway, this was the remnant that went back to Jerusalem. Okay, and here's the funny thing. Cyrus, this pagan king, funded them. He helped fund them to return. It's not just that he let them go, but he also helped to raise some money and resources for them. And not only that, but he made a decree, which is important, but he also put the decree in writing. And in the history and the tradition of the Persian Empire, once a king puts a decree in writing, there's nothing that anybody can do about it. And if you go against this decree, you will be executed. So this was a big deal. And the fact that he put it in writing came in handy. We'll talk about that in just a minute as well. And so three guys essentially ended up, according to Scripture, leading this trek of of Jews back to Jerusalem to build the temple, which, by the way, took about 20 years uh, to rebuild. But it was Zerubbabel, a guy named Sheshbazar, I always liked that name Sheshbazar, if I ever had a son, that was my first. Tried to name Shelby Sheshbazar, but Jackie got in the way of that. So Zerubbabel, Sheshbazar, and Yeshua were the three primary guys that led them back. Now, why didn't all of them go back? Well, uh, the, probably the biggest reason is that it had been almost 70 years since the exile had started, so you need to realize that the vast majority of the Jews that were in Babylon had never even been to or seen Jerusalem or Judah and had only heard stories and and so there's a sense of familiarity and comfort even though they're captive people in Babylon and so they just decided to stay plus the fact that now Cyrus this Persian king had come in that also gave them the promise that things were actually going to get better under him than they were under the Babylonian kings it's kind of like every time we get a new president in the United States we just assume that it's going to be better than what happened under the old president no matter who who it was and so they they, a lot of people stayed there were also some challenges there which I'll talk about in a minute as well in in going back but the fact that not all the Jews went back is the reason that we have a book like Esther the book of Esther in the Old Testament which is a magnificent book and takes place in the Persian capital city of Susa which is also where Nehemiah lived before he went back uh, to Jerusalem it's also why we have Daniel chapter 6 Daniel Chapter 6 is set around 520 B.C., so 19 years after the Persians, uh, the Medo-Persian army invaded Babylon, Daniel decided also to stay in Jerusalem and continue serving the the new government that that came in. So it's why we have Daniel chapter 6. And of course, the the story of the return is why we have Ezra, Nehemiah. Uh, The book of Ezra 
describes the rebuilding of the temple, although Ezra himself was not there when that happened. Ezra was a contemporary of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah actually describes the rebuilding of the wall around the city of Jerusalem, which took place decades later, like 70 years after uh, the temple was rebuilt. And Nehemiah actually led the effort to rebuild the wall. This is some magnificent history and wonderful narratives, wonderful stories. And we're going to get into this today, but I would encourage you to, to just go home and devour the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They are magnificent, wonderful books. I could spend all day uh, in these. But, but that's what happened. Uh, uh, the Jews started to go back around 538, 537. They eventually finished the temple somewhere between 518 and, and 516 as they had some opposition in rebuilding it. Uh, but I will tell you that it was not quite the temple that Solomon's temple was. If you read the descriptions of Solomon's temple in, 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 uh, in uh, Scripture, you realize how magnificent that was. They didn't quite have the resources or the vision of Solomon when they rebuilt the temple. Nevertheless, they did rebuild the temple and they were proud of it. But let's just listen to this little passage that describes just the rebuilding of the foundation of the temple. If you remember last week, I said that the last time Nebuchadnezzar's army went in in 586 to Jerusalem, he was so angry at King Zedekiah that he said, I want you to just dig up the foundation of the temple. I don't want there to be anything left of this temple, even the foundation. So when they went back to build the rebuild the temple, they had to start with the foundation. So this is Ezra chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, and that describes it. It says, Now, in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, so this is 538, 537 BC, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity, from the exile. They appointed the Levites, the priests, from 20 years old and upward to supervise the, the work of the house of the Lord. And Yeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Kadmiel and his sons, and the sons of Judah together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites and their sons and their brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. Listen, all they had done was laid the foundation and they stopped and they celebrated. The people of God need to understand that, that while we mourn our sin, we also need to celebrate victories as well, even if they're just incremental victories. And so they stopped here just at the laying of the foundation. That's all they did. And they stopped and they said, we need to celebrate and we need to praise God for his work and, and what he's done here after all of this time. But listen to what happened. By the way, look at verse 11. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. We sing in here in the morning and, 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 during service, and I just wonder, are you singing along with us? I mean, we're called to sing responsively. And so they sang responsively, and they gave thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout, and they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Listen to this though. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. 
there were some of the people that went back from the exile were in their 80s and 90s. Some of these guys, they had seen Solomon's temple. They had seen the original temple. They knew what it was they were trying to rebuild and they're looking at it and they're going, this is not the same thing that we had before. Now there's some tension there, I think, with that verse too because the, the first thing that a, that a judgmental guy like me is gonna ask of a verse like that is, well, what's wrong with these old guys? Don't they know that they are to worship the God of the temple, not the temple in which the God inhabits? That it's the God of the temple that's important. But other people will come along less judgmental than me and say, yes, but maybe what they're mourning is the fact that what they had before was really um, something that revered and worshiped God appropriately and now what they're building, they're not sure that it cuts the muster to be able to really belong to God. Maybe what they're mourning is the fact that they're not giving their absolute best perhaps in their, in their eyes. So there is a little bit of tension there. Nevertheless, verse 13 Many shouted for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. So people around knew that this was starting to happen, that the, that the temple was being rebuilt. And if you read chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ezra, what you find is that over the next 17, 18 years, there's tremendous resistance to the rebuilding of the temple. Lots of resistance to the rebuilding of the temple. So this was done with great difficulty. So why was there such difficulty in rebuilding this, this, this temple? Well, primarily there was opposition from the people who were already living there to this temple. You have to understand that, that, that Nebuchadnezzar left some of the Jews there to live in Jerusalem. And even though they really didn't have anything to build on, they had still forged a life there. And so they were living there and, they, and they, they had their thing going and they were in charge and, and they were the people of power there. And so all of a sudden, after 70 years, here comes this band of 42,000 Jews with Zerubbabel and, and Sheshbazar and, and Yeshua and they come and they have the documents and they walk in and they say, hey, we know you guys have been doing your thing here for a, a number of decades, but we're here to save you. We're here to take over. We're here to be in charge now. We're here to, to take care of things now. You can just step aside. You ever been in that situation? You ever been at work? You think you're doing fine and somebody walks in and says, oh, here's the new guy. He's going to take over for you now. You just have to sort of step aside. Somebody new comes into your neighborhood and says, what's wrong with this neighborhood? I'm here now. We're going to whip this neighborhood into shape. I'm going to get on the board of the Homeowners Association and we're going to talk about you cutting your grass properly now and things like that. This is essentially what is, oh, by the way, I don't have a Homeowners Association so I could care less. I've just heard stories. But this is essentially what is happening here. So you can understand that there's going to be some resistance from the old guard. And not only that, but there was also resistance from the ethnic enemies in the area. They didn't want them coming in and rebuilding this temple either because they knew that it would become a center of their power again because God was going to be there again in theory. And so they didn't want that to happen either. And so they messed around for a number of years and then finally somebody said, we need to get that decree that Cyrus, the king, actually wrote out some years ago and show them the decree. And so they went and they got a copy of the decree. And, and Darius, who was the king at the time, saw the decree and heard that there was trouble coming against the Jews who were trying to rebuild the temple. And he also wrote a letter and made a decree himself. And understand that if you go against the decree of a king of Persia, you're asking for trouble. Listen to what, Ezra, uh, what Darius says about this now. He wrote this out. 
Darius says in chapter 6, verse 11, also I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, this edict of Cyrus's, if anybody stands in the way of the rebuilding of the temple, listen to what's gonna happen to them. A beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on that beam. The, the Persians, in case you didn't know, were really into this impaling people on bit large wooden sticks and beams and things like that. Remember Haman in, in the story of, of Esther? Okay, they were into this. So if you stood in the way of rebuilding the temple, they were going to pull a beam out of your house, they were going to impale you on the beam, and not only that, but your house was also going to be made into a dunghill. So maybe think Biff from, from Back to the Future, okay? There's, it's it's going to literally, there's going to be your house that was there, it's going to be made into manure, and that means your family is going to be wiped out. And so the people who were opposing the building of the temple, they heard that and they said, okay, go ahead, build the temple. We get it, okay? But it took a while to be able to do that. There were other challenges that they faced. There was a lack of resources in spite of the Persian king's generous help. They still got there and found out they didn't quite have enough, so they had to figure that out. Um, the Jews who were there, uh, because they had to start borrowing some money to get these resources, were charging unreasonably high interest rates, and so they had to work through that, which was actually a violation of the law of Moses. Uh, there was an, a difficult economy there as well that they had to fight. There was a shortage of food at times, and from what I understand, they also only had dial-up internet. They didn't have cable internet, which was a problem. So you can read about all of this, except for the internet thing, you can read about all of this in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and all the challenges. And yet in the midst of this, God is faithful to do his work. And he's doing his work not only through his people, but he's doing it through people who don't even know him and don't even like him. He, he is orchestrating this whole thing because he's faithful to his people. And so I'm going to read through some more of the narrative in, in Ezra and Nehemiah for you to, so you can get a flavor of the faithfulness of, of God. And, and we really want you to know the overarching theme of Ezra, Nehemiah, before we go dive fully into it. Uh, a scholar named J. Gordon McConville writes this paragraph about the overarching theme of Ezra and Nehemiah, and it's very helpful to hear this before we get into it. He writes this, Ezra and Nehemiah describes the history of return from exile while expressing great thankfulness to God and his faithfulness for restoring the community despite enormous odds. Indeed, the repopulation of the ancient promised land is nothing less than a miracle and a fulfillment of prophecy. But the book also expresses great regret that the community is prone to failure in its vocation as God's faithful people. You and I, who know Christ and have been called by Christ and we've been redeemed by Christ and we have the promise of restoration by Christ and we are being sanctified by Christ and we are justified by Christ, understand that you and I still struggle with this as well. That we are called to be God's faithful people but in our vocation as God's faithful people, we are gonna stumble and we are gonna fall and we are gonna have troubles and we are gonna sin. And yet in the midst of that, God is faithful all the time. And we can hang our hats on that, not only hang our hats on that, but we can throw our arms around it as, as well. So let's just kind of get some of the highlights. Let's go to the very beginning of Ezra and hear how, this, how the rebuilding of the temple actually got started. It's, a, it's an interesting story. So Ezra chapter one, verses one through eight. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. That's a specific reference to Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, where Jeremiah says this is exactly what's going to happen. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, 
So the Lord went to a pagan king and stirred him up so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and he also put it in writing. And we see how important it was that he put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem which is in Judah. Now you read that verse and you have to wonder, is Cyrus really a believer in Yahweh? And the answer is, most people would say, most scholars would say, and I would agree with them, the answer is no. He's a believer in many gods, and this just happens to be the God that's in Jerusalem, as you'll see in what he says in verses 3 and 4. He says, Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Now, this is still good, but it's acknowledging that he believes that there are different gods in different places. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of this place, of his place, with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. In other words, Cyrus is going to help them fund this. He says, you guys gather up what you have, but I'm also going to bring some resources to the party. And understand that what they're talking about is rebuilding the temple, the center of their community in Jerusalem. That's the first thing that they're going to go back and do. It's the only thing they want to go back and do because they know if they don't go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, they haven't got anything. The temple was the center of their community. The center of their community was not an arena, it was not a nightclub, it was not public transportation, it was not a museum, it was not a shopping mall, and it was was not even a good restaurant. And there's nothing wrong with those things, but that was not the center of their community. The center of their community was the place where they went to worship and be with God. And so that's what they wanted to build first, and that's what God's faithfulness is about, is is about rebuilding this temple. And he's he's demonstrating his faithfulness through pagan kings here. I hope you understand. Verse 5, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go and rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, and with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in his house of his gods. You can look at Daniel chapter 5 and you can see reference to these vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from the temple of Jerusalem some decades earlier. And then verse 7, Cyrus the king also, uh, I'm sorry, verse 8, Cyrus king of Persia also brought these out in the charge of Mithreddath the treasurer who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And so they were sent on their way. Uh, uh, Years 538 to 535 is just this very beginning of of setting up the temple, of, of building the foundation of the temple, and God faithfully made it happen. Understand, God used a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, to judge his people in his wrath against their sin, and he uses a pagan king, Cyrus the Persian, in order to help them return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. God is faithful in all of these things. So as we said, the temple gets uh, rebuilt. We see that in Ezra chapter 6, verses uh, 14 and 15. Uh, They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And so now they have the temple, but the problem is is that they don't have the wall. Uh, the wall is their security system. The wall is, is, um, 
is, is you know, your house alarm. The, the wall is their, is their nuclear shield. The wall for the city, uh, the cities of antiquity, was their primary defense against attacks. And so they had their temple, they had that going, but they really couldn't get, get, get completed without the wall around the city. And it was many decades, several decades, before that came to pass. But that's the story of Nehemiah that we find uh, in the very next uh, book. And so let me read to you a little bit about that. Starting in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Halkaliah, now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, that would be the 20th year of the king, of Ar- the king Artaxerxes. I was in, this, in Susa, the citadel. So Nehemiah is living in Susa, the capital of Persia, at, at the same city where, where Esther and the story of Esther took place some 40 years earlier. The year here is about 445 uh, B.C. So I'm in Susa, the citadel, that Hanini, one of my brothers, one of his kinsmen, one of his Jewish brothers, Uh, came with certain men from Judah. This is a long trek that they made from Jerusalem, from Judah, to to come and see Nehemiah. And they brought him uh, a report. And so Nehemiah asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. When you and I get bad news about something, what's our first response? Do we fast and pray and mourn and weep? Usually my first response to bad news is to, in my my human greatness, come up with a three-step plan for fixing the problem. My default, as it should be, is not to fast and to pray and to weep and to mourn. Nehemiah becomes becomes an example, an exemplar for how we're to live our lives in the face of trouble and challenge. And then he records this prayer. This is one of the most magnificent prayers that you're going to find anywhere, including in Scripture. And I said... O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. So here you go. He doesn't start by saying, help, I'm in trouble, fix me. He says, O Lord, God, you are great. You are God. He starts by acknowledging who God is. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, me, Nehemiah, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. So the first thing he does is he acknowledges God's goodness in his prayer, and then he confesses sin, not only on behalf of this people, but also of him. Again, is that the way we pray? First of all, we got to start praying. And the second thing is that we need to acknowledge God for who he is and acknowledge us for who we are. This is a great prayer. He says, we've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your, your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and, and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, though you've been 
spread all over the place. From there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servant servants who delight to fear your name. And then this, give success to your servant today, that would be me, Nehemiah, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This man being the king of Persia. He's getting ready to talk to the king of Persia. And then he adds this. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Well, what's the cupbearer? Many of you know. Some of you don't. You should know what the cupbearer to the king is. This was Nehemiah's job. Um, in antiquity, if you wanted to overthrow a government or, or take over a nation, you could do it through blood and violence and war and all those kinds of things. But they also figured out that you could do it sometimes by poisoning the king. So if you could just get to his wine or to his food and poison it and then get him to eat or drink that food or that wine and kill him, you could often have the coup take place without anybody else dying and, and it's a rel relatively nonviolent uh, coup. And so kings figured this out very quickly. And so they uh, instilled a new cabinet position called cupbearer. I don't think we have that in the United States right now. I don't think that we necessarily need it. Although there are security measures in place for President Obama's food, I am sure, or Bush's food. But this was actually a, a, a cabinet position for them. And so the cupbearer would, would taste the wine and taste the food before it was taken to the king. And if the cupbearer didn't keel over dead, then they would say, okay, king, you can go ahead and eat. It was kind of a dangerous job. And, and, and I don't know if there was necessarily any training for it, but you had to have courage. It's also the kind of job that I don't, I don't think you necessarily look forward to the day that you applied for life insurance and they said, well, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a cupbearer. And say, well, you're going to be paying a very high premium then. We're sure. It's kind of like hang gliding, you know. Um, and, 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 and being a cupbearer is, is like if, if you... If you heard a little rumor that maybe somebody's unhappy with the king, what you would do is you'd go on vacation for two weeks and let the assistant cupbearer take over for a while, you know. But it was also a job that got you very close to the king. And history shows that many cupbearers became like best friends to the king. It was an intimate position. It was a position where, where the king learned to lean on the cupbearer and, and, and would be a confidant and, and they became very good friends. And, and Nehemiah apparently had this kind of relationship with, with um, Artaxerxes even though he was still very formal in his position as cupbearer as we're going to see in just a minute. So chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, now old guys like me remember that the month of Nisan used to be called the month of Datsun. It's a really old joke and I just can't resist. I'm sorry, I apologize. Okay. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. Now, the reason that's in there is because one of your job descriptions as a cupbearer is that you could never be sad in the presence of the king. You were not to add to the stress of the king. You were not to bring the, the king's attitude down. If the, king, if the king was happy, you were to keep him happy. And if he was not happy, you were to try to help make him happy. But you were never to influence the king to become sad or more stressed. And in fact, it was a capital offense if you expressed sadness in the presence of the king. The king could have you executed for doing this. And so the king said to me, why is your face sad? Seeing you're not sick, I know you're not sick, so this must be a sadness of the heart. I gotcha, Nehemiah, I gotcha. 
Then I was very much afraid. He was afraid because he knew he had been sad before the king, which he can't do, but he was also afraid because if, he'd, if the king spared his life, he still knew he had something to say to the king that the king may not like. And so he was afraid, and I said to, and, and I said to the king, let the king live forever. You know, it's always good to grease these guys in power before you ask them for something, you know? You're going to ask for a raise? Oh, boss, may you live forever. I need more money, okay? That's kind of how you got to do it, all right? So he says, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? And look what he does. And so I prayed to God. So before he even makes his request, he stops and he prays. Again, how many of us think in the middle of a conversation, I need to pray about this before I open my mouth. I need to be praying about this. And so I prayed to the God of heaven and then I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you would send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves that I might rebuild it. And the king said to me with the queen sitting beside him, almost every scholar that I've read says that the reason that Nehemiah inserted that is because the king at this point looked over at the queen to see if she was on board with what he was about to say. So they were working together on this, on this deal. He says, how long will you be gone and when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And so they worked out all the details. And then I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. In other words, I can't just go there. I, I need your authority. So I need to be able to hand these guys at all these different checkpoints uh, letters from King Artaxerxes that says, hey, Nehemiah can go all the way through to Jerusalem where he's going to rebuild the wall. So he's getting the proper documentation. And then, verse 8, and, let a letter to, uh, and, a, and give me also a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I had asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. God is faithful in return. And so then you look at, at, at uh, chapters 3, 4, five and six and you see that even nehemiah's job of rebuilding the wall was not without opposition and, and, and without challenges nevertheless he finished building the wall with his crew in 52 days because god was faithful and god was with him you look in chapter 6 verses 15 and 16 nehemiah records this so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of elul in 52 days and when all of our enemies heard of it the whole nation, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly on their own esteem for they perceived, correctly I might add, that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. And so they rebuilt the temple, 516, they rebuilt the wall. The wall was finished in 444 B.C. And their response to rebuilding the wall was this. You can read about it in, in chapter 8, which is, uh, uh, Amy read three verses from chapter 8 of Nehemiah. It describes their response to rebuilding the wall. They didn't have a party, but they did have a celebration. They had a worship service. They gathered everybody together, and they called Ezra, who was a priest, and they said, we want you to preach to us. We want you to read us the law. Bring the law of Moses and read that to us and preach to us. And we're told in those, in those verses that Ezra began early in the morning, scholars say about six o'clock in the morning, and he read the law, the Pentateuch, and he commented on it and explained it until about noon that day. 
That's the first five books of the Bible. This afternoon, I'd like you to go home and I would like you to stand in your living room and read aloud Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy and you'll see how long this took. And yet they were glad to do it. They were celebrating. They were giving praise to God who was faithful to do this for them. And not only that, but they all stood the whole time. They stood. They stood in reverence for God and for his word. The whole time they stood. And I know some of you are thinking, there's just no way. Yet, you know, you, you and I, we stand, we still stand in our culture today for stuff that's really important to us. We rarely stand at church except for the reading of the word, three verses. But we'll stand for what's really important to us. Uh, I was reading about both game, game fives of the NHL and the NBA championships, the Spurs and the Kings. Both game fives, the home team fans, the Spurs fans and the Kings fans were standing during the entire game. And the Kings game went to two overtimes. They stood for five periods, standing for their team. How many of you have ever been to a concert and you stood the whole time? In April, I was at a concert at Celebrity Theater. I was in the fourth row. I stood the whole time. And the concert wasn't God. We will stand for stuff that's important to us. They stood in reverence of, of God's word, hearing God's word, and they did it from six in the morning until noon. And they gathered, uh, you heard Amy read, as one. They gathered as one man. There was unity. And they wanted to hear the word of God because prior to the exile, it's recorded that people had quit reading the word of God. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Timothy, you are to persist in the public reading of Scripture. You are called to be diligent in the public reading of Scripture. And we'll see in a couple of weeks, Paul tells the church at Rome in chapter 10 of the book of Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so what I'm going to call you to do right now, some of you knew this was coming, I'm going to call you to stand. We're going to read a section of scripture from, from Nehemiah chapter 9 that is a summary of the entire history of this series of the promise, the formation, the rebellion, the exile, and the return. It's a summary of, of this entire series and it's a summary of God's faithfulness to his people in the midst of that. It's only going to take us seven minutes, but I'm going to ask you to stand in reverence to God and his word as we read it. So please stand if you can as we wrap this up. This is a magnificent passage. I love this passage. This is the confession of the people of, uh, of Israel to God for what he has done and how they have been unfaithful in the midst of that. And they start at the very beginning. They say, starting in verse 6, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven, <clears throat> the heaven of heavens, with their hosts. And you've made the earth and all that is in it, and the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worship you, worships you. So they, he starts with creation. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram. So then he goes to promise, which was our first uh, week of this series. You chose Abram, Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name of Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you. Uh, Abraham was faithful and it was counted to him as righteousness and made with him the covenant to give, you, give, to, uh, <clears throat> give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous 
And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. And now here comes the exodus. Here comes the formation chapter, the, the week two. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all of his servants and all the people in his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day and you divided the sea before them so that they went through in the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into the mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire at night to light their way for them in, which, in the way in which they should go. You came down from Mount Sinai and spoke with them from the heaven and, and, and you gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made, them known by your, uh, you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, manna, and water, brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go into and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck, and they did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are, not, you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful. You're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God which brought you up out of Egypt and committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The, power of, uh, the pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. And then I love this sentence. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. God is faithful even in the tiniest of details. And you gave them the kingdoms and the peoples and allowed them to stay uh, them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. That's a reference to the promise of Abraham. And you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and they possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into your hand, into their hand. And their kings and, their pe and the people of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and, <clears throat> and a rich land and took possession of houses full of good things. Cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. I will confess to you that when I'm invited to somebody's house for dinner, I'm just a low-life derelict. You need to understand that when I'm invited to somebody's house for dinner and I walk in there, it is a joy and a pleasure when dinner is already ready and on the table for me to just sit down and eat. I don't want to sit around for two hours doing small talk, waiting for the food to be ready. This is what God did for them when they entered the land. The cisterns were already hewn. The table was already set. The food was there. And look what they did. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, 
And then this entire next long paragraph is this cycle of rebellion that that Sean uh, gave us during the third week of this series. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven and according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies but after they had rest they did evil again before you and you abandoned them to the land of their enemy uh, of their enemies so that they had dominion over them yet when they turned and cried to you you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies and you warned them in order to turn back to turn them back to your law Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, them, and they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end to them or forsake them. You are a gracious and merciful God. And now this next paragraph describes the time of the exiles. Now, therefore, our God, the great and the mighty and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, upon our princes, and upon our priests and our prophets and our fathers and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. You have dealt faithfully and yet we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amidst your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you've set over us because of our sins. Even though we're back in the promised land, there are some restrictions that we are living by. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please and we are in great distress. But, verse 38, because of all of this, in spite of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. We're going to be your people. You have shown faithfulness to us through the worst of our existence and therefore we are going to be faithful to you. We're going to be your people. John tells us in the New Testament that it's because God first loved us that we can love him. It's because God sought us that we can be saved by his son. And it's because of God's faithfulness and mercies and grace to us that we can be faithful to him. We are his people. We must covenant with God, the the God of the covenant for us, that we will be his people and we will be faithful. It's a magnificent story and we're a part of it even today.